Thanks, uh, Daryl and team. As, uh, as Daryl said, we're, we're working on a, a series based on work. So it's, it's just a mini-series, really, three chapters out of the book by R. Paul Stevens called Work Matters. And uh, first week we looked at Adam and Eve and the creation narrative and what it tells us about work. Last week, Shah did a great job of looking at why work is difficult, looking upon the impact of the fall. And uh, this morning in the last of the three, we're just going to look at Jacob and his story and what it reveals to us about work. And if you know the story of Jacob in uh, the Old Testament, uh, it, it really does read like a bit of a, a soap opera, I think is perhaps the best description. And my favourite soap opera uh, is uh, Bold and Beautiful. Uh, it's usually on just before the news on... Channel 10, about 5 o'clock, it runs from 4 to 5, and I usually catch a few minutes of it, you know, after rushing home from work, but uh, I usually catch a few minutes of it before the news comes on. Nothing much seems to happen, though. <laughs> sort of been watching it for a few years yet, but apparently it's been going for 33 years, and in the 33 years, a lot has actually happened. Um, how many weddings do you reckon there's been in 33 years? Apparently it's 90 been 90 weddings on uh, Bold and Beautiful over the 33 years. 19 characters have died, which is sad, but three of them have come back from the dead. <laughs> and then three others have also visited from beyond the grave. There's been 18 babies born. Seven characters have been kidnapped. Five have been on trial. Sally Spectra has fallen into a large body of water on three occasions <laughs> and nearly drowned. Uh, and seven of the characters of, of have also had that uh, problem. And Brooke has been married 19 times. <laughs> Ten of those times to Ridge. <laughs> so, uh, Jacob's life, and maybe it's got some elements of this when you look at uh, Jacob's life. And, uh, but, but one of the, the, the strange things, when you, when you look at the, the story, there is a theme that runs through it. And it's work. The word work itself appears eight times in the, the five chapters of, oh, eight chapters of, of Jacob's story, but it's really the theme that runs the whole way through. And in particular, it's about exploitation of work. And uh, that's what we'll be, be looking at this morning. And we can break up the story of Jacob into five acts. And the first act is Jacob the grasper. And you might know the story that his mother, like his mother-in-law or grandmother-in-law, uh, had struggle uh, uh, falling pregnant. And she had uh, you know, waited many years praying. Uh, Rebecca waited and prayed many years waiting for children. When she finally conceived, it was twins. And she felt the twins jostling within her. And uh, the firstborn was Esau, who was the, the big and hairy one. Uh, but closely following Esau was Jacob, the grasper, so named because when he was born, he had his hand fastened onto the ankle of his older brother as he came into the world. And they said, ah, he's a little grasper. And the name Jacob is drawn from that. But Jacob, the grasper, soon became Jacob, the exploiter. And, and, and the name was so apt. He spent his whole life trying to grasp, particularly his older brother, and uh, the famous story as they were, were teenagers that um, Esau was a hairy man and a strong man and his father's favourite and he would go out into the fields. But Jacob was uh, 
Well, he was a mummy's boy. Yeah, he was his mummy's favourite. He would hang around the tents and he would cook. And he got to be a very good cook. That was his, his good work. While Esau was doing good work in the field, Jacob was meant to do good work at, uh, at the tents. But uh, his brother comes in one day, starving, hungry. Give me some of those red lentil stew. Uh, and maybe Jacob was you know, joking a little bit when he said, yeah, sure, bro, uh, give me your birthright and I'll give you some stew. But uh, either way, Esau said, yep, um, I'm, what does it matter? What does a birthright matter if I'm starving to death? And so Jacob won the birthright from Esau. But a few years later, it got even worse. So uh, their father, Isaac, was on his deathbed and he's blind and he's, he's feeling as though his life is, is passing away and so he calls for his elder son, Esau, his favourite son, he says, go and slaughter some livestock and cook me up a nice meat stew, you know, my favourite, and when you bring that to me, I will give you my blessing before I finally pass away. But uh, Rebecca has overheard this and she's, her, her favourite is Jacob, so she calls in Jacob and, and says, quick, go and slaughter one of the goats from the, the, the family uh, herd and uh, I'll cook up a stew and you go in. And Jacob is, is thinking, but, but I'm, I'm a smooth man, my brother Esau is hairy. And she says, don't worry, we'll put some goat skin on you so that uh, you know, your father's blind so he won't know that it's uh, you and not Esau. And so he pulls off the tree, he goes in with a bowl of stew and, and he's speaking and Isaac is thinking, that sounds like Jacob. But in an amazing twist, he gets a sniff of a dead goat on the, on the arms of the boy and goes, that smells like my older son, <laughs> my teenage son. Hmm. And uh, he's convinced that it's Esau, not Jacob. He gets his blessing onto Esau and onto Jacob. And when Esau comes back and finds out, he says, dad's going to die soon. And when he dies, younger brother, you're not going to be that far behind him. And so Esau has divided the family, or Jacob has divided the family, and he ends up fleeing to his uncles, so Rebekah's brother, Laban, to find a wife, but also to get away from Esau, his older brother, who wants to kill him. And that is the beginning of Act 3, which is the story of Jacob himself being exploited. The exploiter of Act 2 is exploited in, chapter, in, in Act 3 of Jacob's story. So the story is he travels from Canaan and he arrives at Haran, which is his ancestral home, and as he approaches the city, he comes across a, 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 a flock of sheep and goats and some herdsmen, and they're standing around waiting for all of the sheep to come in before they move this big stone. So in those days, they'd have a big stone over the well, wait for all of the sheep and the goats to get there, push it aside, water the livestock and then push the stone back. So they're all standing around, leaning on the stone. And as Jacob starts to talk to these herdsmen, he discovers this is his uncle's flock. This is his, these are his kin. And so there's that sense of excitement. But then in a beautiful moment, coming straight from Hollywood, straight from uh, Bold and the Beautiful, there is this beautiful woman sort of coming out of the sunset, uh, walking towards Jacob with a herd of goats and sheep. And he is in love and he is is struck with, with, with love for her and uh, he goes over and discovers that it's Laban's daughter, his cousin. In those days, that's what you did, you married your cousins. And so he's immediately thinking, here's the girl of my dreams, 
and in a, an act of macho work, rather than letting all of the shepherds roll the stone away, Jacob strides up and moves the stone himself and says, Rachel, are you impressed? As, uh, as the sheep and the goats come in and feed. And then we, we have the, the wonderful narrative of uh, what happens next in uh, chapter 29. So he goes back and uh, Laban comes and finds out that Jacob, his nephew, has arrived. And in uh, chapter 29, verse uh, 14, says, After Jacob has stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? We well, had worked for a month for nothing, but uh, tell me what your wages should be. And Jacob says, now Laban, well, now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, which is an interesting description and there's been thousands of commentators down through the centuries trying to work out what that meant. I think it means that she had thick glasses. <laughs> All right? Leah had weak eyes, uh, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. And so Jacob, in his besotted state, says, I'll work for seven years in return for your daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than some other man, so stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed only a few days to him because of his love for her. Guys, that's a high bar, isn't it? But uh, he's, he's a total mess, young Jacob. And then Jacob said to Laban, uh, well, wait, then later, so he's worked for, for the seven years. Uh, then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife, my time is completed and I want to make love to her. So Laban brought together all of the people of the place and gave a great feast. But when evening came, he took his, he took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob, and Jacob made love to her. I don't think anything like that has ever happened in Bold and Beautiful. Uh, but uh, he'd obviously had a bit too much champagne to drink, and he wakes up in the morning, and it's the girl with the thick glasses, instead of the beautiful one he wanted to marry. Verse 24, And Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Verse 26, Laban replied, Is it not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one? Finish this, this daughter's bridal week, when we will give you this, the younger, then we will give you the younger one also, in return for another seven years' work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his, his servant Bilhah to his daughter, daughter Rachel as her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah and he worked for Laban for another seven years. So Jacob the exploiter had now come to be exploited for his work. At the end of uh, the 14 years, uh, Jacob wants to, to go home with his two wives and, and his growing family and his flock. But Laban has become quite wealthy through exploiting Jacob, who actually turns out to be quite good at looking after the sheep and the goats. In those days, the normal arrangement was that if you were the shepherd looking after a flock, you could receive 20% of the 
birth of the, of the goats and the sheep, the kids and the, the lambs that were born. And that probably would have been the negotiating point for Jacob to continue to serve Laban or work with Laban. But instead he comes to Laban with a strange offer. He says, Uncle, you can have all of the plain sheep and goats if I can have the spotted and mottled sheep and goats. All right, if so. So he's kind of even said, instead of giving me 20%, you can just give me the ones that are mottled and spotted, which would have been lots less than 20%. So Laban, the exploiter, goes, oh, oh okay then, son, my dear nephew, you can do that. But, of course, Jacob has a plan. He has this theory that if the sheep and the goats mate in front of a stick, a, a mottled stick, that they will give birth to mottled and spotted animals. And so, obviously, Jacob knew nothing about genetics. But God blessed it. And lo and behold, over this next seven years, Jacob became very wealthy as he had all of these spotted and mottled animals that were part of his flock. And the time came for him to, uh, to move on because Laban's sons were becoming jealous of Jacob. And so Jacob decides to, to move on. And uh, he, he goes to uh, La- uh, Rachel at this point and says, uh, so Jacob sent word to Rachel and Leah to come out of the fields where his flocks were. He said to them, I see that your father's attitude towards me is not what it was before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I've worked for your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me by changing my wages ten times. And uh, Jacob the exploiter has now been thoroughly exploited and he's sick of it. And uh, he turns around and begins to move on after his uncle has changed his wages ten times. And this begins Act 4 where Jacob begins to, instead of being an exploiter or exploited, becomes Jacob the thankful. And it's one of the most bizarre stories in the entire Bible. So Jacob is is heading back to Canaan and he knows he's going to come face to face with his brother Esau, who is still perhaps wanting to kill him after even after 20 years. And he hears that Esau is coming towards him with 400 men and so he, he begins to, to get very fearful and he splits his family and his herd in half and he puts one half over there one half over there sort of thinking that if Esau attacks one group perhaps the other half will be able to escape and then at night he sends all of them to the other side of the river and ominously the Bible says that Jacob was alone and an angel who turns out to be God himself comes and wrestles with Jacob all night. Jacob is a energetic, he's a grasper, he's a, he's a wrestler and, and so he, he, he wrestles the whole evening and, and as dawn approaches God says to Jacob I've got to go and, and Jacob is still clinging to him and it says that, that God dislocated Jacob's hip which must have been incredibly painful to, to make him let go. But Jacob still grasps onto God and says, I won't let go until you bless me. And this is the real turning point in Jacob's life, where instead of grasping, he chooses to trust in God's blessing instead. 
and uh, he, he limps away after this into the, it says, you know, he limps away in the morning. Shortly after this, he, he buys a, a block of land, indicating his days of being a shepherd and a wanderer are over. And we read in Genesis 45 that when uh, Joseph, his son, calls for him to come down to Egypt, he needs to send carts to go and get Jacob. And so it, it's likely that Jacob never worked again. He could barely walk after the injury, after the encounter he had with God. But he still counted himself more blessed because of that. And we have this, this verse where we finally see that Jacob has understood he can trust in God. As, uh, as he comes to Esau, he gives a gift to Esau and he says, please accept the present that was brought to you for God has been gracious to me and I have all I need. God has been gracious to me and I have all I need. He'd all of a sudden, he'd finally realised he didn't need to grasp, he didn't need to scheme, he didn't need to exploit because God had been gracious to him and had given him all he needed. That's the gospel, isn't it? That's, that's the spirit of the gospel. It says we don't need to grasp our salvation. We don't need to work for our salvation. We don't have to manipulate things to be saved. We just have to trust in God to be our salvation. This is what Abraham had discovered. And finally here, Jacob discovers it. And so here is the great truth that we don't need to be exploiters of others because God has given us all we need and we have salvation through him. And so this has implications for our workplaces, has implications for the whole of our life, that we, we don't, we're not to be exploiters, but to be trusters in God's blessings instead. And uh, you can make good decisions at work, which produce wealth, which produce good outcomes for people, that are, create a blessing for, for you and for your family and for the community you serve. But if ever there is exploitation as part of those decisions, you're heading down the wrong path. We operate by trust, not fear. We no longer fear that we'll get ripped off. We no longer fear that we won't get what, we should des what we're deserving of because we trust in God and in his grace towards us. And uh, you might be in the position where you potentially can exploit other people. You, you might be in a position where, because of your power or your intellect, that you can not or take the credit that belongs to somebody else rather than letting them receive the credit. You might be in the position where it's, it's tempting not to give people the resources they need in order to be able to do their work. That's exploitation. Uh, you might be in the position where you can, can exploit someone and... and as Christians, realising the sacredness of work, we need to be committed to being non-exploitative. But even if you're not in that sort of position in work, you are still potentially in a position where you can exploit others. And the gig economy is what has created that. So the people who work in the gig economy, the people who bring you meals and drive you around in their Ubers, are on the very margins of the economy they are the most precarious of workers and it's very easy for us to exploit them and so we need to work hard that when we utilize the gig economy that we are generous and that we don't do anything that adds to the 
the marginality and the desperation of these people who work in that field. And we also need to recognise that we're part of the global economy, that we are the recipients of the exploitation that happens in places far, far away. And you might think it's a really good thing that you can buy a pair of jeans from Kmart for $20. But understand that that only gets there, that incredible cheap price is only possible because of the exploitation that has occurred down the, down the supply line. So there are still parts of the world where children are ripped out of school to pick cotton for 12 hours a day so that the prices, the price demands of the manufacturers can be met. There are still factories around the world where workers are enslaved or work for pitifully small amounts of money in order to make the fabric that goes to make your jeans. There are also sweatshops in places like Bangladesh where the workers work in unsafe conditions for very small wages in order to make the clothes that we buy in Australia at 20 bucks and then wear them a few times and throw them away. Don't want to feel guilty about this, but there's something we can do. And Australian Baptist World A are leading the world in some respects in the work they're doing with their ethical fashion guide. What they've done is to go to the manufacturers of clothes follow-up suppliers in Australia and say, do you know what is happening in your production lines? Do you know what exploitation of workers is occurring in the manufacture of the products you sell? And you can go through and you can look in the, in the guide and you can look up your clothing manufacturer. I don't think the thrift shop is, is in there yet. Uh, but you, you, can, you can look up the manufacturer of your clothes and you can see how good they are or how poor they are. And if they're not, if they're taking a responsible attitude and saying, yes, we are responsible for what happens in our production supply lines, you can send them an email or drop into their shop and say, I really appreciate what you're doing. But if they rate an F, which is basically saying it's not our problem, you can go in there and you can say, I'm no longer going to buy my goods from you. I'm not going, no longer going to buy your brand because you're not taking responsibility for what is happening in your supply line. And uh, I did this with one of my clothing manufacturers I buy and I got a very prompt and apologetic response. Right, so they are sensitive to this. And this is a very practical way that we can make sure that we are not exploiting other people the way that Jacob exploited and was exploited. With the coming of Jesus and the, the birth of the kingdom of God and the, uh, the beginning of, of the reign of God in the world, we begin to see the end of exploitative work. And unfortunately, you might be in the position where you are exploited in your workplace. And if that's the case, you live in the hope of the coming of the kingdom, the, the consummation of the kingdom of God, when work will no longer be a place of exploitation, but a place of worship as it was created to be. But in the meantime, if we are in a position to not exploit other people and to work against the exploitation of workers, we join with God in the bringing of the consummation of the kingdom of God when he will make all things new including work. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the example of Jacob, a story full of good and of bad. And Lord, we pray that we will not fall into his error of being fearful, of being a grasper, 
and particularly in our workplaces, that we will look to always be free from exploitation. For those who are being exploited, Lord, we pray for your kingdom to reign and for them to receive fair money for their work and uh, justice and safety. And we pray, Lord, that if we are tempted to exploit others in our workplaces, that you'll, you will show us where we're doing the wrong thing and help us to set it right. Not just because we, it's a good thing to do, but in response to your gospel. That gives us the confidence to trust in your blessings rather than trust in our own exploitative behaviour of others. Lord, we look forward to the day when your kingdom reaches its fulfilment, when a whole lot of evil things will be done away with, including exploitation at work. We look forward to this day. Amen.